If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Once he was persuaded to come to the door, quite naked, he saw the sky, he saw the planes, he ran back indoors, he put his trousers on, and he put a call straight through to the United Press office in San Francisco, telling them what had happened. That was Nicholas Best explaining how news of the attack on Pearl Harbor spread around the world. Now, it's difficult to separate uh, the contribution of few geniuses from the common contribution of everybody, but few geniuses certainly existed in the history of science uh, and had an immense uh, influence. And that was Carlo Rovelli discussing the history of physics. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to our first podcast of December 2016. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. 75 years ago this month, Japan attacked the US naval base at Pearl Harbor, destroying hundreds of planes, damaging numerous ships and killing over 2,000 men. This was the day of infamy that prompted American entry into the Second World War, turning it into a truly global conflict. Historical author Nicholas Best has written a new book on the events and aftermath of Pearl Harbour. And I caught up with him a little while back to get his take on one of the defining moments of the 20th century. Can you just give us a brief idea of what the state of the war was, particularly in the Pacific, prior to the Pearl Harbour attacks? Well, the situation in the Pacific was that Japan was involved in a very long and expensive war with China that wasn't going well. The Japanese had invaded expecting to win a war in three months and they'd actually been at war for four years uh, and were running out of the supplies they needed to continue the war and that means oil and things like that. Uh, They had also invaded Indochina, uh, French Indochina now known as Vietnam and as a result the United States had cut off all help for Japan, uh, and they had put an embargo on the supplies that Japan needed to continue their war in China, especially oil. And so the Japanese needed to capture places like Malaya and Java that were very mineral rich and could supply them with oil uh, to continue their war against China. And to do that, to capture Malaya and Java, they first had to put the American fleet at Pearl Harbor out of action for at least six months. From the American point of view, do you think there was anything they could have done differently to have avoided this attack taking place? The Americans were most anxious to come to peaceful settlement with Japan. Uh, But the problem was that the Americans insisted that Japan must withdraw from China and French Indochina, and the Japanese 
didn't want to do that because they would at first they would lose face uh, and they felt that if they did that they might also have to withdraw from their colony of Korea. So from the American side there was very little the Americans could do short of accepting that the Japanese could rampage around the Pacific wherever they liked. And the Americans couldn't stand for that. So no, the Americans were stuck with the situation that was beyond their control. As we all know, the attack on Pearl Harbor is one of the great surprise attacks in modern history. How do you think the Japanese were able, in a fairly modern time, to achieve such a level of surprise? Um, well, there was a lack of radar, for one thing, and that part of the Pacific is enormous. Uh, and it was simply a question of being able to see the other side coming. The Americans didn't have it covered. Nobody had it covered. Uh, and, of course, the Americans weren't expecting it. They, they knew that the Japanese were about to attack somewhere because from radio intercept and spies, they knew it was going to happen. They looked at the map and they thought, goodness me, they're not going to attack one tiny little island in the middle of the Pacific. For one thing, American bomber planes flying from California to Hawaii often can't find the place and they didn't have all the modern equipment that they have nowadays and it's a very difficult spot to get to. So it was a total surprise. Uh, and I don't think you can blame the Americans for that because it, it, it's hard to know what they could have done differently. On the attack itself, would you say it was a, from a Japanese point of view, was it carried out in a brilliant fashion? Is that why they caused so much devastation? The Japanese were very, very lucky, I think. Uh, the plan went wrong right from the beginning. The Japanese pilot in command fired a couple of flares, uh, which were misinterpreted, uh, and the Japanese all went in together, which was not the plan. And in fact, they were hugely lucky, and it worked very well. So... Uh, Yes, they were successful. They could have been more successful if they had come back later and finished the job. Yeah, because I, I understand that the fact they didn't take out the American aircraft carriers was to have a very important long-term consequence in the war. Yes, the aircraft carriers were a problem. The whole point of the attack was to knock out the aircraft carriers, and the aircraft carriers were always in harbour at weekends, which is why the attack was planned for Sunday. That particular Sunday... The aircraft carriers were at sea. They were delivering aircraft to American places like Wake Island that, that were closer to Japan so that the Americans could defend themselves better. The Japanese admiral in command of the fleet knew after he had set sail that the aircraft carriers, the American aircraft carriers, had left Port Pearl Harbor. But by the time he discovered that, all the crews on the Japanese ships had been told where the attack was going to happen. They had been warned that it was Pearl Harbor. So the Japanese couldn't then go back to Japan and do it all again another time. They either had to go on or not attack at all. And the choice they made was to go ahead and do whatever damage they could. But it, uh, in terms of knocking out the aircraft carriers, you can say that the, the attack was a total disaster. The Japanese must have realised that they were going to awaken potentially the world's leading industrial power by attacking at Pearl Harbour. Did they really expect they could somehow win a war against the United States? Lots of Japanese were very much against the war, and that would include, I think, you're never quite sure, Emperor Hirohito, and certainly Admiral Yamamoto, who helped to plan the attack, and also quite a lot of Japanese who were in the attack. They wondered how on earth they were going to beat a place like the United States. The answer is that they were hoping to have a very quick conquest of places like Malaya and Java and then negotiate. 
They didn't expect to defeat the United States. They expected to take control of the islands and places they needed to fuel their war effort in China. And once they had control, uh, their assumption, quite erroneous, was that the Americans would do a deal. So uh, it was really very foolish on Japan's part to make such a spectacular misassessment of the American character. I understand you've read a lot of sources from people who actually witnessed the attacks on Pearl Harbor. What kind of sense do you get of the shock for these people when they saw this huge attack taking place? Oh, I think it was an absolute total shock. I mean, it was a weekend, they were playing football, they were going to the cinema, they were all going to dances. Uh, it came completely out of the blue. Admiral Kimmel was well aware that an attack might happen. He was blamed after the attack for keeping all his battleships in harbour. His view was that they could be better protected by anti-aircraft guns in harbour and it would save fuel and they would be bigger targets outside harbour. Uh, so that all went wrong for him. But uh, the thinking people who, who were running Pearl Harbour were well aware of the problem. Uh, but for ordinary people, it was a total shock. And how quickly did the news of this attack spread around the world? Well, that all comes down to Lord Mountbatten's nephew, who was a small boy called Noel Cunningham Reed, who was had been sent to Hawaii for safety. They were getting him away from wartime Britain. And he was out playing in the garden of the house where he was staying when he saw all these Japanese planes come over. And he ran straight next door to the house of an American newspaper correspondent, knocked on his door, told the man that they were being attacked by the Japanese. And the American correspondent was in bed and not at all pleased to be woken by an 11-year-old English boy. But once he was persuaded to come to the door, quite naked, he saw the sky, he saw the planes, he ran back indoors, he put his trousers on, and he put a call straight through to the United Press office in San Francisco, telling them what had happened. In those days, you had, a, you had to book telephone calls and send cables, and it was very difficult. But he was fortunate enough to, to book a call and get the cable out, and the news went to San Francisco and from there all around the world. And so what was the reaction back in the United States when people heard the news of the attack on Pearl Harbor? Half of them didn't believe it at first. Uh, they heard there'd been some shooting somewhere. In those days, most Americans didn't even know where Pearl Harbor was. They'd never heard of it. It took a long time to percolate. I, uh, I say a long time, just a few hours. But by that, that evening, I think all Americans knew that something dreadful had happened. And, of course, they reacted in the same way as they did with the Twin Towers in New York in 2001. Stunned at first, uh, and then growing anger, and then a demand for retribution all over America. Next day, all the recruiting officers were absolutely swamped with young men wanting to hit back. And so was it pretty much a universal demand for America to wage war on Japan at this point? Well, yes. Uh, I think they had a vote. When they had a vote in Congress, one person voted against the war. And that was, a, I think, a Republican lady congresswoman from, I think, Montana. Uh, and she had voted against joining the war in 1917 as well. But she was the only voice, only vote in either of the two American houses who, voted, who was against the war. Everybody else was 100% in favour. Now, this mattered to a number of the other warring powers, as well as America and Japan. Do we have a sense of what the reaction was back in Britain to the attack on Pearl Harbour? 
huge enthusiasm. Uh, I don't think anybody felt particularly sorry for the Americans who were killed. There's two stories out of Pearl Harbor. One is small air attack in Pacific, not many killed. And the other story is huge industrial power, world's mightiest industrial power, comes into the war on the side of the good guys. Uh, and that was the story in Britain. They were really, really pleased that America was coming in at last to help them win the war. Do you think there would have been more, more sympathy for the Americans who lost their lives had this happened outside of a war? Oh, yes. I think, I mean, the American casualty rate outside the explosion of the USS Arizona was not large. To put it in context, on the day after Pearl Harbor, 10 Germans in Latvia killed 11,000 Jews. Uh, each of them killed more than 1,000 Jews with one bullet hole in the head. So, I mean, a lot of people in Europe were dying all over the place. So it was, in the context of the European war, only a very small byproduct. It was the after effects of Pearl Harbor that were the big deal. And what about at a leadership level? How did Churchill and Roosevelt react to this attack? Roosevelt was hugely relieved when Pearl Harbor was attacked. Some people say that he knew it was coming. I don't think that's true. But the point for Roosevelt was that the gloves were off at last. He, would, he no longer had to pretend that he was neutral in the war between Britain and the Nazis and all of that. The gloves were off and he was on Britain's side and they could just go ahead and fight a war properly. Uh, the American cabinet met that afternoon and they all agreed. They were all just delighted that they were no longer pretending that they were neutral. Churchill in London was hugely relieved as well. He was at dinner when he heard about Pearl Harbor and he was very despondent about how the war was going. But when he heard the news, he spent the rest of the night dictating telegrams and saying to himself, well, we've won now. It's still going to be a long, hard road, but we cannot lose with the industrial muscle of the United States on our side. Uh, and it had interesting effects in places like Hollywood. They were filming Mrs. Miniver at the time of Pearl Harbor. And because the United States was neutral and because the America First Society was very determined that America should stay neutral and not get involved, and there were Senate hearings saying America must not favor Britain in the war, that had affected the script of Mrs. Miniver. They weren't able to make the film they wanted because they had to stay neutral. Uh, MGM had big box office profits in Germany, and they had, had to make a film that didn't offend the Germans. But once Pearl Harbor had happened, and America was in on the side of the Allies, they were able to rewrite the script and make the film they wanted to make. And you can see that in Mrs. Miniver in the final part of the film, where the vicar in church stands up and tells the congregation what they're fighting for. And that speech was written immediately after Pearl Harbor. They wouldn't have been able to put it in before. On the Axis side, what was the reaction of the Axis leaders to the Japanese attack? Did they know about it in advance and how did they feel after it happened? The Germans did not know about it in advance, uh, probably quite wisely on the Japanese point of view. But then, no, they didn't know what was going to happen. Uh, and Hitler was exactly like Churchill. He too was at dinner gloomy about the prospects of the war. On the German side, the Germans were trying to capture Moscow by Christmas, and it wasn't working well. The Wehrmacht had run out of steam, 
and the Russians are mounting a counter-offensive, which was causing them a lot of trouble. And Hitler was very gloomy. Uh, he'd finished dinner. He was an hour ahead of Churchill in London. Uh, and he'd gone to his bunker when the news of Pearl Harbor was brought to him. And he was absolutely delighted, the same as Churchill. Uh, it's very odd, but they both were very pleased. And Hitler ran across the compound in the cold without his coat on to tell Field Marshal Keitel and Yodel what had happened. One of the things he said was that Japan had never lost a war in 3,000 years. <laughs> that was going to be good for the Germans. I think he was hoping that all the military material that the United States had been providing to Britain and Russia would now be withheld because the Americans had to take care of their own interests first. And he thought that might be a chance to finish off the British and the Russians before the American industry could get going on a war footing. Uh, and he was, of course, quite wrong about that. And do you have a sense of how the news of the attacks actually played out to ordinary people in Japan? Ordinary people reacted much as people in America. They were, I mean, they weren't outraged, but they were pretty shocked. Uh, a lot of Japanese came to the same conclusion as people all over the world, that the Japanese could not win this, and they wondered why they were doing it. But, of course, uh, they're a very cohesive society, uh, and once a decision has ta been taken, they all get behind it and back it. So they all turned up at the Emperor's Palace and cheer cheered and bowed, and, and they were patriotic just like anybody else. But thinking Japanese knew it was very silly, and the American ambassador knew lots of sensible Japanese who apologized profusely for what was going on quietly, but not, not actually saying it's nothing to do with me, not me, Gov. That was what they were thinking. They, they didn't like it any more than anybody else. Was it always going to end in disaster for Japan? Do you think there was any way that they might have somehow managed to either win the war or get the kind of negotiated peace they were looking for? They weren't expecting to win a war against the United States. It was the negotiated peace. Uh, and that went wrong the minute they didn't sink the aircraft carriers. Uh, the whole strategy depended on the Americans not, not having aircraft carriers. The Japanese were doomed uh, immediately. Uh, I think Yamamoto knew that. He wasn't part of the fleet that was attacking Pearl Harbor. He was at home in Japan. And he passed the decision to the admiral who was actually sailing there. Uh, he said, you, you decide what's best. I think he was just passing the buck there. They should have scratched the fixture and gone home once they knew that there were no aircraft carriers in Pearl Harbor. I mean, they could never have won the war. Instead, they went on a disastrous course that ended up with two atomic bombs being dropped on their people. So uh, it was not a good idea. So when people talk about something like, say, the Battle of Midway being a turning point in the Pacific, in actual fact, was there really no turning point? Japan essentially was always doomed to defeat. I would say the Japanese were always doomed to defeat. Uh, there's always a turning point where the losing side becomes the winning side. There often is such a turning point, and Midway was it. But no, the Japanese couldn't win. It's all a matter of sums and adding up who's got the military material, frankly, and the Japanese didn't have it. And we're now very close to the 75th anniversary of Pearl Harbor. It's clearly one of the most well-known events in 20th century history. But do you think there's anything more we can learn or we need to understand about what happened then? I think politicians can learn something, that they should never embark on a course that's going to end in disaster. But of course, the kind of people who start wars are A, not the people who are actually going to have to fight them, and B, they're people like Hitler, who was a, an all-or-nothing gambler. And if you allow a person like that to have power, unfettered power, without people around him restraining him, then they're always going to do these things. Uh, and, and that is something for people to think about. 
that was Nicholas Best. His book, Seven Days of Infamy, Pearl Harbor Across the World, is out now in both the UK and the US, published by Thomas Dunn. And you can read an article by Nicholas in the Christmas edition of BBC History magazine, which goes on sale this week. Also in this issue, we have articles on the charge of the Light Brigade, Henry VIII's Six Wives, Black Power, and the historical antecedents of Donald Trump. Our Christmas issue will be available in all good news agents in the UK and internationally in our many digital formats. Outside the UK, it may still be an earlier edition that's currently in the shops. And if you'd like to take out a subscription, we currently have a great deal available for new subscribers in the United States, where you can try three issues of the magazine for a total of just $9.95, including postage. You can find out more and take advantage of this offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com forward slash history US. Our second interview this week is with Carlo Rovelli, an Italian physicist and writer whose recent book, Seven Brief Lessons on Physics, was an international bestseller. His new book is Reality is Not What It Seems, The Journey to Quantum Gravity, which charts our changing understanding of time, space and reality from ancient times to the present. I spoke to him down the line recently to find out more. How important would you say ancient thinkers were to modern scientific development? I would say crucial. We wouldn't have modern science without uh, ancient uh, science. There was a direct uh, influence, uh, more than a direct influence. I think uh, in Europe, uh, science started as an attempt to recover old science, Greek science. And uh, even in the books of Newton, uh, uh, so we're well into the beginning of modern science. Uh, Newton even says uh, um, in one of his books uh, that the ancient knew a lot of things that had been lost. And uh, he presents some of his results as if he was just uh, trying to catch back with uh, uh, antique knowledge, um, while in fact uh, he was much more ahead of ancient knowledge. And one of the stories that comes through a lot in the book is about the development of the atom. Can you tell us a little bit about how that idea first came about? Yeah, the atomic idea is one of these typical ideas that was developed in, in ancient time uh, and sort of was forgotten even and came back and came back via discovery of ancient texts. And uh, modern atom is often referred to, to, to ancient idea. So it was, a, it was a key idea in the philosophy of Democritus. Uh, um, was of one of the main philosophical schools uh, in uh, in antiquity, both in Greece and later in Roman uh, times. Uh, the, the debate at the time was: What is the world uh, made uh, of? What are the sort of the elementary constituencies of the world? It's just one thing. It's a it's a, it's a collection of things. And uh, what? How? Uh, there was this very general idea that we we should be able to make sense of the world in terms of something simple. And what is this something simple? And Democritus and his school came out with the idea that perhaps the world could could be understood just in terms of these uh, atoms, namely these individual little things moving around in space, and uh, everything is just made by that. The motivations were some based on observations, some based on some uh, abstract considerations. Uh, um, I think the main motivation was perhaps that uh, it's... Uh, hard to think that we can take a piece of matter and break it at infinity. The resistance to the idea that something can be 
infinitely small or infinitely big or, or infinite. Um, so Democritus came out with that. A lot of ancient physics was based on that. One of the schools of ancient physics, that was called the atomist physics. It was forgotten. And then there was uh, the rediscovery of this fantastically beautiful poem by Lucretius, which is all about science and about uh, Democritus' ideas. In fact, it's about the ideas of um, Epicurus, uh, who in turn uh, follows the physics of Democritus. And uh, in modern time, that's how the idea that matter is made by little bits, by atoms, uh, uh, appeared. And uh, it was long discussed, uh, and uh, it turned out to be finally confirmed uh, only by Einstein. And this is a fantastically beautiful story. It's, a, it's an old idea, two millennia old, uh, which resurfaced, uh, came back, and uh, Einstein finds a nice way to more or less prove it. Now we all know, now we have machines that we can actually see the individual atoms. So yes, matter is made by atoms, and uh, humanity figured it out uh, through a long path, which is an old idea being confirmed in recent times. And you've already hinted at this a bit, but why do you feel there seems to have been such a long gap in scientific progress between the ancient time and then the scientific revolution that doesn't come for maybe 1,000, 1,500 years? I think in, in the history of civilization, this is a great question, and uh, it's a question that deserves to be investigated more, more by historians, not by scientists like me. But definitely, let me put it this way, I think in modern times there's a resistance of viewing the Middle Ages as, as dark ages, right? I mean, Middle Ages were a rich period in which uh, a lot of things happened and ideas were developed. But from the point of view of uh, rational thinking uh, of natural sciences, uh, they were definitely dark ages. There's no doubt about that. Just take uh, what we learn at school, in primary school, in middle school, and uh, try to date uh, when those things were first understood. Just what we learn at school, geometry, geography, grammar, basic literature, uh, basic physics, uh, and uh, you get two peaks, one uh, in uh, sort of uh, modern times uh, and uh, one uh, around, uh, I don't know, the third century before the common era, so third century before uh, before Jesus Christ. Geometry was invented at the time, grammar was invented at the time, geography was invented at the time, optics was invented at the time, and so on and so on. It's a long list of, of things. So the uh, humanity had a period of fantastic development of uh, rational knowledge about the world, uh, in the Greek period, and uh, a second remarkable period in modern in modern times, so after after the Renaissance, uh, it started with Galileo and Newton, and all the way to now. In the between, uh, there is this long period in which, uh, at least around the Mediterranean, uh, most of the ancient knowledge was uh, lost, uh, forgotten, uh, discarded, uh, and not considered important. Reasons are complicated. Uh, certainly, the, the Roman Empire uh, was one of the factors. So the, the Romans learned a lot from the Greek, uh, uh, but not in this domain. So, uh, Greek knowledge was lost with, uh, in, in, in part with the Roman Empire. But especially, I think, is when the Roman Empire uh, Christianized. So, it, it went back to a, a structure of power connected to religion. And uh, it, uh, it was the end uh, of these few centuries uh, in which uh, uh, religion was only very loosely connected with power. And it went back to an older structure in which uh, there was a dominant way of thinking and much less uh, space. In fact, there was an explicit uh, fight against uh, everything which was considered rational thinking. It's something 
I think which uh, I I would like historians to to look at it much much more. One of the things I uh, somehow history of science is complicated because there are few people who understand science and history at the same time. <laughs> I, I read a lot of history of science written from people who don't understand science. There are statements about uh, Greek science which make no sense for a scientist. And of course, a scientist like me has only a, a weak understanding of, uh, of uh, how history should, uh, should work. So, of course, there, there's wonderful history of science, uh, but uh, much less, I think, than uh, uh, what would, uh, would be needed. I think that uh, science is a historical process. It is still now a historical process. Uh, and uh, science is better understood uh, thinking historically, but also history is better understood uh, understanding what was the science of the times. And there's a point in your book where you talk about how the work of Dante hints at later scientific discoveries. Do you think that this shows how other fields can shed light on science? Yes, that intersection with science is uh, it's, it's a bit striking and uh, it's completely surprising, especially in modern terms. Dante was very cultured. He, he knew the science of the time. He was a very learned uh, man and it was an extremely intelligent man. But this doesn't seem to be enough for some fantastic intuitions that are in his uh, uh, poem. And the most striking one by far is uh, that um, he gives a, a picture of the universe. His poem is a description of the universe as a whole. And he describes the, the, the geometry of the universe. And it's a remarkably non-classical, non-intuitive geometry, which is uh, essentially the same that Einstein came about many centuries later. Uh, technically, it's called the three-sphere. It's a, it's a universe which is uh, finite, but has no boundary. Uh, so it's a very completely geometrical construction. And Dante somehow had a, clearly had the intuition about it. Um, this was realized by some American mathematicians. And, uh, but if you know the mathematics and, and you read Dante, it's totally obvious that he's talking about this mathematical idea. I think what it shows uh, is that deep intuitions uh, might go across disciplines uh, and uh, there is a, a constant exchange. Well, in that case, it was not really an exchange because it didn't flow from Dante to Einstein. I don't think Einstein knew about it. But uh, science is about having vision of the world uh, that then makes sense rationally and experimentally and scientifically. Poetry is about having visions of the world uh, that make sense for us emotionally. But again, we're always trying to understand the world, make sense of it. And it's the same enterprise. The, the methods are different, uh, but the task uh, is developing conceptual ideas conceptual schemes for thinking about the world. So it's a common enterprise, uh, I think, literature and, uh, and natural sciences. Another hugely important figure was Isaac Newton. From your point of view, how much is his contribution important to the development of physics over the next few hundred years? It's probably the greatest uh, physicist uh, ever, Isaac Newton. He's the one who has uh, been able to take the, all the advances, the, the steps ahead uh, in, in the Renaissance from um, Copernicus, uh, the discovery that the Earth goes around the Sun, and Galileo, and Kepler, Huygens. Uh, and um, it was a momentous uh, change in our understanding of the world. Uh, and uh, and uh, Newton took all that and brought all that together in this fantastic picture, which is Newtonian mechanics, which lasted for many centuries. It's the best basic understanding of the world that we, uh, that we had. Then it changed 
in the in the 20th century with Einstein with quantum mechanics, um, but the fact it changed it doesn't make Newton useless or didn't really overcome Newton in the sense that Newton remains the the, the ground on which we have built more. It's not that Newton theory is wrong. Newton theory is just not wide enough to include the physics of the atoms, the physics of the universe as a whole, and uh, the physics of things that go very fast. But it remains fantastically good physics. So uh, science has great revolutions, right? We change our view of the world. We discover that the Earth is round. We discover that the Earth moves. We discover black holes and space is different than what we thought. And time is different than what we thought. Time goes faster in some places and slower in our. So it keeps changing our understanding of the world. But it doesn't mean... Uh, that it makes old knowledge uh, useless uh, or wrong. It uh, shows that old knowledge was uh, imprecise and uh, and uh, only good in some domain, but nevertheless good in those domains. So I think science is far more accumulative uh, enterprise than uh, what uh, a lot of modern description of science and modern philosophy of science makes of it. It's true that we change idea, we discover that we were wrong all the time, but nevertheless, uh, uh, science is a cumulative enterprise. We, we everybody builds on the on the on the shoulder of the of the previous one, and uh, the some of the largest shoulders of of all is, is Newton. We own to Newton understanding how to do mathematical physics, how to do mechanics. Uh, how to write equations for the world. Uh, and then on, on that, we went ahead. This year marks the centenary of Einstein's general relativity theory. Can you give us a sense of how important a moment that was for physics? Major. Uh, I would say after Newton, the person who most understood to our present understanding of the world is Albert Einstein. Albert Einstein changed uh, our understanding of space and time, made the first step toward quantum mechanics and therefore our understanding of matter. He started again, and essentially he did again what Copernicus and Newton did, so changed the rule of the game from basics. So his influence in, uh, in, in physics has been uh, immense. Having said so, I have been blamed, uh, and I think correctly so, uh, I think historians could appreciate this uh, uh, debate. I've been blamed because uh, I tend to read the history of science as the contribution of a few giants, uh, or actually I tend to present the history of science as the contribution of few giants, which of course is um, is certainly incomplete. Uh, science is a complex uh, uh, collective enterprise uh, in which many people contribute and it builds on uh, on all these contributions. But however, having said so, nevertheless, uh, there's no doubt uh, also that a few people make great steps. Uh, Albert Einstein uh, is not just um, one article in which he put together other people's results. It's a, it's a, it's a number, it's a remarkable number of uh, works that he did, uh, which uh, building on what was around him uh, changed our view of, of reality. Now, it's dif- difficult to separate uh, the contribution of few geniuses from the common contribution of everybody, but few geniuses certainly existed in the history of science uh, and had an immense uh, influence, uh, and Einstein is, uh, is one of the greatest of them, perhaps with Newton the greatest in physics. And so we've talked about some of the, as you say, some of the really well-known figures such as Galileo, Copernicus, Einstein, Newton. Are there any other scientists who you feel should be better known for their contributions? 
Yes, uh, Dirac, I think, is a typical case. Dirac is, is with Einstein, the great scientist of uh, 20th century, the great physicist of 20th century. And uh, quantum mechanics was uh, largely put together by Dirac on, on, on the basis of what other people have had done uh, before. The science of Dirac is very abstract and hard to synthesize and to explain, much harder than Einstein. Einstein, well, he understood the space curves and time curves, and uh, that the gravitational waves, the black holes, um, these are not easy things to digest, but they're, you know, black holes are just stuff which are up in the sky and we see them and things fall inside them and don't come out. It's not so hard to get a sense of, uh, of them. Uh, while the Iraq contribution, uh, namely clarifying quantum mechanics, uh, it requires a much deeper diving into the complications of physics. Uh, and the Dirac himself was such an incredibly strange uh, personality, was uh, probably autistic or nearly autistic, uh, is one of these people who wouldn't talk, never show emotions, uh, and he was a very nice guy, in fact, a uh, very nice chap. Um, there's a recent uh, beautiful uh, biography of, uh, of him, but uh, it was uh, sort of unperscrutable as a, as, as a man. And uh, certainly he would deserve to be known as one of the great scientists of all times, uh, while he doesn't have the recognition that names like Newton or Einstein or Darwin in different fields uh, have. Somebody like Einstein, obviously the work he did was very advanced, but there are, I think a lot of people around the world can understand some of his ideas. Do you think we've got to a point now where the, the work physicists are doing is so advanced that the general public just can't keep up with them? No, I think that there is a delay between discoveries, new ideas, um, and, uh, and when the general public uh, get them. This delay, it's, um, it's intrinsic, for, it's necessary for many reasons. One is that... Uh, uh, it takes time to be sure that these ideas are right. <laughs> so it wouldn't make sense for, for, for the large public to follow the last fashion because uh, the fashion may be turned out to be wrong. Uh, so, for instance, when, when, when Copernicus understood that the Earth is not the center of the universe, uh, nobody believed him for a while, not because people were stupid, it's just because the evidence was, uh, was not very strong. Uh, I think an intelligent and uh, cultured person uh, the generation after Copernicus uh, would probably have thought correctly so that, well, maybe he was right, but more probably was wrong. Um, so there's this time, and plus there's a time to digest strange ideas. The idea that this move is strange. Um, so it, it took a lot of time for everybody to understand what it means to the Earth to move. And now it took a century to confirm all Einstein ideas, and they've been confirmed in a spectacular way. So more and more people are are, are curious to know what we have understood. And it takes time to understand what it means for time to slow down, for uh, black holes uh, to be holes in space, and it takes time. So this time. And this time, I don't think is longer now than before, and I don't think that science is more difficult now than before. I think uh, it has always been hard to digest new ideas. We will digest quantum mechanics and uh, general relativity and the novelties uh, in due time. What discoveries of the last few years would you say people in the future might see as the kind of Einstein moment of our time? We don't know. We don't know. In the in the last few years, there have been a, a spectacular set of uh, experimental uh, discoveries in physics, uh, but they were all confirmations of old ideas. The most beautiful one has been last year with the uh, gravitational waves. 
LIGO in America, this uh, big uh, antenna, has captured gravitational waves, which physicists thought that existed. is an idea by Einstein. And a century later, here we are with a beautiful confirmation. And there was a discovery of the Higgs, which is a similar story, and, uh, and other things like that. So what we have seen recently is confirmation of, uh, of ideas. Now, some things people expected new to find, uh, for instance, in particle physics, did not arrive. In cosmology has delivered us uh, some funny novelties, for instance, dark matter. I mean, this is evidence that the universe is uh, full of stuff we don't understand. Maybe this will turn out to be important, but we don't know. It's very hard to know what is important right now, because we're on the boundary between what we know and what we don't know. And uh, again, science is a historical process. It's a slow historical process. And it's also slow today, in spite of the perception of um, speed. So it's a moving thing, and we're immersed in this moving thing. And uh, like, it's hard to say what is the most important uh, sort of historical, global, political process in the planet. Uh, well, we sort of see it, but we might go wrong. Uh, same in science. I think that uh, we're figuring out quantum gravity. This is a great step ahead. Uh, am I sure? No, not at all. That was Carlo Rovelli. Reality is not what it seems. The Journey to Quantum Gravity is out now in the UK, published by Alan Lane. In the US, it's due to be published next month by Riverhead. And now it's time for this week's history news with our website assistant, Ellie Cawthorn. 48 skeletons, including the remains of 27 children, have been discovered in a black death burial pit at Thornton Abbey in Lincolnshire. The pit dates back to the 14th century, when bubonic plague epidemics are believed to have killed up to 60% of the British population. DNA testing of the skeleton's teeth revealed plague bacterium Yersinia pestis to be present. Archaeologist Dr Hugh Wilmot suggested that the mass grave is an unexpected find, as despite the huge number of plague deaths, victims were generally still buried individually in parish churchyards. He stated that the pit sheds light on the real difficulties faced by a small community ill-prepared to face such a devastating threat. Mass burials are a sign of when the system has broken down. This community had obviously reached a point where it could not cope. In other news, a prayer book believed by some experts to have belonged to the young King Henry VIII is being put up for auction, with an estimated guide price of £2.5 million. The elaborately illustrated book dates back to 1500 and is one of few such examples to survive the Reformation. It also contains a rare image of Thomas Becket. Most pictures of him were later destroyed after Henry VIII outlawed the cult of the saint. Meanwhile, an Anglo-Saxon pendant discovered by a student in Norfolk has been officially declared treasure of national significance by the British Museum. Inlaid with garnets and dating back to the 7th century, the gold pendant was found in a grave believed to belong to a high-status Anglo-Saxon woman. Tom Looking, the 23-year-old history student who discovered the pendant in 2014, said that the incredibly rare find had certainly given me a good dissertation project. OK, well, that's about it for this week's episode, but please do listen in next time when we're going to be talking to a group of politicians who also double up as historians. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com 
and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. Thank you.